0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Hugo Lane, and today I'll be speaking with Mary Neuberger. Mary has followed an unusual academic path by focusing on Bulgaria. Her book, The Orient Within, Muslim Minorities, and the Negotiation of Nationhood in Modern Bulgaria, is now available in paperback from Cornell University Press. Today, on New Books in Eastern European Studies, we are lucky enough to have Mary Neuberger uh, with us to discuss her book, The Orient Within, Muslim Minorities and the Negotiation of Nationhood in Bulgaria. It was actually published some time ago originally, uh, but has been reissued in paperback and uh, it's, uh, even when it was uh, not yet a, a published book, I was I was very excited about this book and I'm finally glad to be able to talk to Mary about it.
1: How are you doing today, Mary? I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm doing just fine. Thank you. And uh, so, um, since you're here, let's start with uh, the big question, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times before, but it's one that uh, I think people want to know, if, how does someone get interested in Bulgaria? And it's not the place we immediately think of what Americans uh, focusing their interest in, even when they're looking at Eastern Europe.
1: Yeah, um, you're right. A lot of people ask me that question, and um, so I've answered it many ways for many different people. and I have a long answer and a short answer, but the short answer is that I started off studying Russia. I was interested in Slavic culture and Slavic languages, and in graduate school, I kind of moved to the periphery of Russia and began to study those areas where um, Islamic populations and Christian populations interacted, and that became really interesting to me. I took a course on Balkan history, and that was it. I was sold. I was thinking about studying the former Yugoslavia, actually. But the war was going on because this was the early '90s, and so it was impossible to get fellowships to go there to study the language. So I ended up getting an opportunity to study Bulgarian. I loved the language; thought it was really—it's kind of an interesting take on Slavic language. There's no endings, unlike Russian. Um, but I loved the sound of it and everything about it. I went to Bulgaria, and I loved Bulgaria. I loved the mountains. You know, the food, it was much more like Greek food, for example, like a lot more vegetables involved, things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on the Black Sea. I mean, I just love the region. I traveled around the region every summer at graduate school cool. oh, wow. and just fell in love with it. And so intellectually, it kind of fit a lot of my interests because of the Islamic populations and the relationship with, you know, the Ottoman past. And so that was, that was kind of it. I was hooked.
0: Well, it's, uh, I mean, I would be too. I mean, uh, I, there's a great story about, uh, Roman Spulu coming back from Italy and coming, I visited it in middle age, coming back and coming to m- man who became my dissertation advisor, uh, saying, uh, calling him up on the phone 15 minutes after getting home saying, Ray, how did you become so smart to study Italy? <laughs> and I mean, when you study Northeastern Europe and, uh, so, uh, Russia, I mean, those root vegetables, you have to get used to them in the winter and, uh, <laughs> Uh, I think that uh, had we all had the sense to focus first on our foods, we might be just studying the Balkans much more. <laughs> so um, so that's, how, that's how that came. Now, well, the interest in the you said you the, you also mentioned to me that this was uh, in, in the peripheral interest uh, also in Central Asia and this, uh, Islam um, and then Christian interaction. What took you in that direction of the interest of, of peripheries?
1: Um, actually, I think it was um, one of the professors I had in undergraduate, my undergraduate studies, who was a geographer, and whose focus, instead of being on kind of Russia and the Kremlin, was much more on the republics and Eastern Europe. And he was this kind of renaissance man who was a folk dancer, you know, knew seven languages. You know, I wanted to be him. and In studying the kind of the complexity of areas like the Caucasus and Central Asia and the Balkans, it was just to me it was fabulously interesting. And so that's why I got drawn into that, that kind of the way cultures interact and collide and coexist and conflict and all that that went on in those kind of those types of regions. So the Balkans was like that. So it, you know, it made sense for me to pursue Balkan studies. It just worked for that intellectual interest. Yeah,
0: I mean, one of the things I, I've always seen in Balkanists is the, the the ability to be able to look at different things, their joy in the multiple perspectives <laughs> of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that's true of many East European scholars, but I think it's particularly true of the Balkan, the Balkanists. Uh, so, uh, moving on closer to the Balkan, I mean, this focuses on on the Muslim minority. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, now to start with, there are two groups. You talk about Homops and Turks. Uh, Could you describe both those and uh, describe the differences and similarities perhaps?
1: Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, there are other actually Muslim groups in Bulgaria. The largest one would be the Roma, but I don't spend too much time talking about the Roma in the book. Because they're just quite different socially. I mean, there's so many ways in which they don't fit, um, and they were dealt with in a different way by the regime. And even their relationship to Islam was quite different. It's much more informal. But the two groups I focus on, Turks and Pomaks, um, were treated similarly by the regimes, various regimes in Bulgarian history. Um, depending on the time, and the timing was a little bit different in the way they treated them, but they were, you know they treated them kind of ultimately the same in certain key ways, and also those populations um, were related to each other in various ways. So these are both Muslim populations who, uh, and the Turks. You know the Turkish population speak Turkish, and the Pomak population speak Bulgarian. They basically speak in a Slavic dialect that we call Bulgarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Pomaks are basically converts from the 17th century. <clears throat> and concentrated in a popul- in an area in southern Bulgaria, whereas the Turkish population are a, kind of a mixture. they're mostly migrants from Anatolia that moved in over the five centuries of Ottoman rule um, since the 14th century. but um, many of them also were probably converts, a mix of um, Bulgarians or Pomaks or various populations that kind of married into the Turkish population and converted because so there's a lot of mixing um in these populations over the centuries. The Turkish population is much bigger um, in number. It's close to 800,000 today, whereas the Poaks are only a couple hundred thousand. The Turks also live in the north of Bulgaria, in northeastern Bulgaria and in the south, um, and tend to be, they have kind of more elites among their ranks. They have a political party now, things like this. They're more organized. They've been more organized and educated. Uh, historically, and there's some intermarriage between these populations. So the Pomaks tend to identify themselves with the Turks, even though they speak Bulgarian, because of religious background. I mean, many of them are not necessarily religious today, <clears throat> but they still consider themselves Muslims, and they still see this uh, kind of ethnic line between themselves and Bulgarians. Now, there is a segment of the Pomak population that identifies with Bulgarians, But it's a small, smaller segment of the population than the ones that identify with Turks. So if you visit Pomak regions, they're unlikely to, for the most part, um, for example, move to Sofia, learn Bulgarian, assimilate to the Bulgarian population. They're more interested in intermarrying with Turks or even going to Turkey to study. Um, And so they tend to not identify with the majority, majority population, even though they speak the same language.
0: Now, how, deep was this identification say in the year i mean you start the book uh in the year of uh of 78 1878 after the uh failure of the san stefano treaty um and to 1908 i mean how, were these already well-defined groups or are mm-hmm. they um were they more externally defined
1: right <clears throat> i mean That's the thing. I mean, even Bulgarians at this point weren't well defined as a group. I mean, they didn't, there was an elite among Bulgarians who, you know, uh, had sort of identified the Bulgarian nation as such. And, you know, we're trying to construct the national identity. Mm -hmm. But among the bulk of the population of any religious or ethnic persuasion in the region, there were not really clear ethnic boundaries and ethnic groups until well into the 20th century. When you have mass education, so actually, um, really, you know, on the local level, people had multiple identities. Religion would have been one of them, and I, I think the most important one. So these groups would have been mostly identified themselves by their religion. Um, and the reason I say that too is because a lot of people were multilingual, and so even you know the Pomak populations would have, in many cases, at least certain segments of them spoke Turkish. I mean not as a mother tongue at home, but would have spoken it, and the Turkish populations would have spoken, many of them, Bulgarian or Greek. And so there was a lot of multilingualism, there were fluid identities, and certainly not a need to form this sort of group identity that went outside of your locale. And the Pomaks were the last, and even to this day, don't have a cohesive identity of, uh, you know, sort of a mobilized ethnic identity of we are pomox. Um The Turks did mobilize that kind of identity, but even for them, it wasn't until between the World Wars that that even started in Bulgaria. Um, and even then, it would have been only a segment of the population that were mobilizing under this kind of uh, label as Turks. And so, yeah, these labels are, were very much externally imposed and fluid And so that's even using the terms becomes problematic. As a historian, it's hard to, when you know, especially when you're talking about a period in which these terms weren't used by the groups
0: themselves,
1: you know, it becomes hard to how do I talk about them, you know, as a population.
0: So that is a difficult, that is a very difficult problem. And one, I think, when, when, when we accept the notion of nations as constructs is particularly you know difficult because you know we when we read history of Eastern Europe or something and you're reading about this nationality and that it's always being pushed backwards and figuring out the ways to talk about that without falling into the trap is uh, I mean that's one of the biggest problems I think uh, in this kind of that particular uh, angle of studying Eastern Europe.
1: Yeah, it becomes very complicated, and you don't want to have to keep reminding the reader, oh, but this term is problematic, and I'm just using it because I have to use something to talk about this population, you know? Mm -hmm. So so it becomes a real problem.
0: I mean, just taking off from uh, what you were saying earlier about the lack of a sort of cohesive identity beforehand, uh, talk about uh, the relations between Muslims and Christians in Bulgarian Ottoman times, please
1: yeah I mean that's something that of course uh, there's a certain amount of controversy about in the literature, and certainly especially the the local the national literatures of the region tend to have a, quite a different perspective from western literature and even in the you know anglo american literature that there's not kind of a consensus has i think developed recently, but it's If you look back on some of the older scholarship, it doesn't see, you know, it doesn't agree with this at all. So generally there seems to have been, though, in the region, a pattern of general coexistence in the Ottoman period between Christians and Muslims, in part because the Ottomans were generally tolerant of Christian populations, um, because they did not subject them to Islamic law and they allowed them a kind of a local autonomy. I mean, they, they also weren't necessarily Giving them a lot of resources to develop their own education, et cetera, but they allowed them to have church property, for example, and resources, their own resources, in which they could run their own schools, which of course would have been limited, but um, they could collect their own taxes, they could have their even their own court system. And so that autonomy allowed um, for, you know, Christians and Muslims to coexist. In fact, they didn't want all of them to convert because they got a larger tax base Out of Christians as Christians and Jews, Um, but they also didn't have to serve in the army, so there were certain benefits. Now Christians were were second-class citizens, of course, in the Ottoman Empire, and there were certain things they couldn't do. There were certain colors they couldn't wear, you know. There were certain um, there were all kinds of restrictions on, you know, how tall a church could be built and things like this. So there were certain restrictions on those populations as Christians. But I mean, if you look at just the history of their kind of coexistence in the region, um, you can't really find sort of ethnic warfare or warfare based on one religion against each other um, until the 20th century. I mean, even at the time of conquest, the Ottomans created all kinds of alliances with Christian leaders as Christians, not forcing them to convert. And if you look at even the big famous battles, like the Battle of Kosovo, for example, see there were Christians on both sides. You know, so it's really hard to claim any kind of, you know, even jihad or history of Christian Muslim enmity in the region because um, actually there were all kinds of enmities in the region. But ones based on ethnic boundaries were not the primary ones, nor were they even really, we can't really find them in the historical record until the 20th century, which is the Ottoman period. Now during the Balkan Wars, we can see a little bit of that during the first Balkan War which was a a, sort of a Christian crusade against the Ottomans, pushing them out of uh, Europe but then in the second Balkan War we have Christians fighting each other and aligning with Muslims so even then, any idea of a kind of a Christian-Muslim kind of basic, you know, primordial hatred
0: is in question Um, It certainly sounds that way uh, and you know that's been my impression. Now there's uh, two terms that you mention, and I mean, so people who've read a little bit about that part of the world have probably run across one is the millet, uh-huh. and the other is the fez. Now the you know the impression I got, and I think my real introduction to the millet was probably reading Bridge on the Drina. Um, not necessarily the best source, but although a wonderful piece of literature. Um, And I was surprised reading your book to learn that the Millet is a fairly, was a fairly recent adaptation, at least as I understood it from the book. It was not something the Ottomans, you know, had set up in 1453. Right.
1: Well, I mean, I guess what I mean by that and what Ottoman scholars have kind of uncovered is that um, in a sense... From the beginning, the Ottomans did appoint, you know, a head of the Orthodox Church in Istanbul and a head rabbi in Istanbul, you know. Um, and so, I mean, and for those of you who don't know what the Millet system is, it's this idea that of, uh, you know, sort of extraterritorial self rule by the religious groups in the Ottoman Empire, generally the Orthodox Christians and the Jews, although later there was something like a Millet. Even for Catholics and Protestants, that wasn't until the 19th century. Um, And also the Armenian church had a separate millet. But but what scholars have uncovered is, although there was the head of the millet appointed in Istanbul from the get-go, they really didn't have, it wasn't a centralized system. So they didn't have power over the entire empire. And that on the ground, too, there was... Self-rule by the various Christian groups, but it was much more local and ad hoc. And so, in a sense, it, calling it a millet system is kind of problematic because it wasn't systematic. <laughs> it was much more ad hoc. It was much more local. But nevertheless, the spirit of it was there. And that was that based on your religion, you had kind of a separate administration locally. And there was at least some sort of representative in Istanbul of your Millet. In the 19th century, there was more of an effort to centralize the Millets and actually, that it created a, a real problem within the Greek Orthodox Millet because this is precisely what sparked um, nationalist movements that started within the church, actually, for Serbs, for example, and Bulgarians. who did not want to be under some kind of centralized Millet system. Because when it was decentralized, they could actually use old church Slavonic in the churches. But when the Greeks began to try and centralize, they wanted Greek used in the churches. And this was something that sparked this reaction among the clergy, the Slavic clergy on the local level. So it was much more local and ad hoc, which, which I think makes sense when you think about how really local identities were in that period. So in addition to having a religious identity, people had... Had really regional, you know, town identities, regional identities, other kinds of just really localized. Rather than thinking of yourself as part of this larger entity, people really thought of themselves locally, as belonging to a
0: locale. Right. So the and that, so that makes the millet until until the nineteenth century, you know, the more localized thing. That's right. Uh, yes. That's a useful distinction. The other uh, you know, term people have definitely heard is fez. Yes. And I was uh, struck to learn that the Fez, you know, I'd always had the impression that, you know, basically Turks had been born wearing Fez's, even if the name Fez comes from a town, I was is in Algeria, I've forgotten. Um, but, uh, they, you know, they've been wearing them since goodness yep. knows when. And they, you said it was a fairly recent hat, and it was designed to uh, cut across uh, a, a religious and ethnic lines.
1: Yes, and this actually, um, much of this came out of a really useful and interesting article by Donald Quater about uh, this, but so it came out of actually a reform, the reform period, um, it, which had several phases in 19th century Ottoman history, but the idea of the fez was it was supposed to be a Western hat, actually, but they couldn't put with the brim because it would have been too Western and also for Muslims if they needed to touch the floor with their head while they were praying. They couldn't do it with a brimmed hat. So they needed a hat without a brim. Um, and they needed one, so it was sort of a hybrid hat, one that um, could sort of mean a sort of a westernization or modernization of the Ottoman Empire, but not be too Western, and one that could bridge the religious groups to create a real Ottoman identity. Um, and so there was a lot of, I think I talk about this, and Donald Quadra talks about this in article. but there's actually a lot of resistance to the fez when it was first introduced by people who wanted to wear turbans. And so there was kind of a struggle to impose the fez among certain elite populations, especially who the Sultan really wanted to wear the fez as a sign of Ottomanism. But it became the hat of the Ottoman elite. So Jewish, Christian, Muslim, this was the hat. And so the interesting thing about it is that if you look at a lot of photographs of 19th century Bulgarian various elites who have been appropriated by the national movement because of their contribution to education, you know, to publication, this kind of thing. A lot of them are wearing the fits in their pictures and <laughs> because that's what one would have worn in the 19th century if you were an urban educated, you know, elite. Um, and so this was
0: a hat worn across religious groups. You actually have a picture of a lovely family, a beautiful family here uh, that has them, and they are, you identify them as Christian, Mm -hmm. and um, the man is indeed wearing a fez. And this is in the, you don't have a date for it, but it definitely looks late 19th century. Uh, And so that proves the point. And I think it also gets at another issue, which is that we tend to forget that, you know, modernity comes in different directions. And sometimes modernity comes uh, by way of the, uh, you know, by way of the East. And so all these people, they, um, although there are, as you mentioned, some French influence in the, young, uh, the women's clothing, there are other things that make them look, you know, they wouldn't look that out of place in, say, uh, in Syria or someplace.
1: Correct. And so a lot of Western influences, of course, were coming into the Ottoman Empire in this period, too, via Istanbul. And so what I find interesting in the 19th century is that a lot of um, Westernization is coming into Bulgaria filtered through Istanbul, essentially. I mean, Bulgarians are beginning also to go out and study um, in Western Europe, you know, certain young sons of merchants, for example, and bring influences home that way. But really, Istanbul in the 19th century had the largest concentration of Bulgarians in any city. I mean, there was 30,000 Bulgarians living in Istanbul, and that was bigger than any other urban concentration of Bulgarians anywhere. Uh, And so it was there that they got the sort of urban cosmopolitan experience, and uh, certain Western or these sort of hybrid Western kind of practices came to them via Istanbul.
0: Um, Is that how the nationalism comes in as well Is by way of Western contacts in Istanbul? or?
1: Um, I mean, it comes through a lot of different channels, but that's certainly one of them. And so you have a merchant class in Istanbul. They, you know, they have their own cafes, they have their own publications, and they become this sort of organized, educational, you know, kind of a center in a way for Bulgarianness. To develop, especially in relationship to Greekness and to other kind of distinct ethnic groups in the city, and in many ways, I think in the city, much more than say in the village, you have ethnic identities or national identities um, kind of cohering and coming together because it's a it's a different kind of interaction, different kind of contact um, in a context where you know, the populations are educated, where they're mobilized, and so. At least for 1930s Istanbul. I think that's certainly a major context for Bulgaria.
0: When did Sofia become come to dominate Bulgarian, you know, so national culture?
1: Not until after 1878. Plovdiv um, was, act, was actually a bigger center. Plovdiv, turned the central Balkan mountain area, um, kind of in between Plovdiv and Felipe Ternovo, there was these smaller towns where you had really concentrations of Bulgarians. But as far as a larger city within Bulgaria, Plovdiv had the largest Bulgarian population and became kind of the heart of the national revival, um, in addition to those Balkan mountain towns nearby. So Sofia um, was certainly smaller, less developed. So why did it become the capital? Well, actually, Plovdiv was less the borders of the first autonomous state. Um, it became the capital of Eastern Romania, which was a separate province that was not part of the original. It didn't become part of Bulgaria until 1885. So, Belgrade was out, um, and Sofia made sense because it was closer to Macedonia. And so, if, if Bulgaria was going to eventually get Macedonia, Sofia would have been, you know, had kind of occupied this more central place within the state. I mean, today it's pretty far east; it's really far from, you know, the Black Sea coast. I mean, it, it's sort of like awkward in a sense. Like, probably was would probably have been a better capital, um, except it wasn't included
0: in the original. Bulgaria. So it was that math that dream of a greater bulgaria macedonian bulgaria that pushed that east yeah because i that was the, my first thought as we were talking about it just now uh, so this idea of bulgarianness it's developing in the you know in the 19th century it is getting it's being shaped among other things by this idea of whether macedonians or bulgarians yes uh could you talk a bit more about this in the uh to define to what extent is the is this new reformed millet being used as a tool to define Bulgarians uh, on religious grounds? Uh, what about the you know, they obviously are aware that there are these um, Muslims in their midst? Uh, are do they see these Muslims in their midst as? Uh, Part of their community or as, uh, a threat to the community? Uh, what was, what was, what, what are they looking at as, as the, as this Bulgarian-ness uh, idea gets going?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of an enormous question. Uh, but, you know, actually, as I was saying, in many ways, the Millet system, as it became systemized in the 19th century, was something that would have pushed religion, um, in a way, to the side, because they're Orthodox Christian, like the Greeks, but they're beginning to say, "But wait, we don't want to use Greek," and so defining actually themselves by the language community, um, because they're differentiating themselves from other Orthodox communities. Now, when it comes to Macedonia, it's kind of a can of worms because that whole po- the Slavic population of Macedonia did and does, you know, essentially speak the same language that they do, or you know, a dialect. Um, and is the same religion, and so that population they definitely, on both grounds, could and still do claim as Bulgarian. Um, and but you know, since there were a lot of other populations mixed in, and a lot of other ways of claiming populations as your own, um, and more importantly politics, Bulgaria was on the wrong side of both world wars. Um, they never got Macedonia, um, and so it's sort of created a strange situation today where you have two states side by side bulgaria and macedonia that speak basically the same language i mean macedonia macedonian has an identical grammar it has some differences which you know bulgarians claim have, are kind of serbianisms that have been integrated through the standardization of language but i mean dialects are, can always be standardized very in Anyway, they're the same religion, speak the same language, but have had different histories and have been part of different states, and so today have two distinct identities. At the same time, you have at least a number of Macedonians kind of claiming themselves as Bulgarian lately, <laughs> and I think part of it, even some prominent ones, is because Bulgaria is in the EU and Macedonia is not. <laughs> and, so that, and so they've actually claimed Bulgarian citizenship
0: to Bulgaria, but... That difficult? Are they? Are they given some kind of uh, automatic recognition of citizenship?
1: They have been. I mean, they actually Bulgarians have actually embraced that. Okay, great. Now you admit you're Bulgarian.
0: And <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But as far as Muslims are concerned, it's more complicated because certainly in the 19th century, even as, you know Bulgarians began to embrace themselves as Bulgarians by language. Let's say. Religion, though, was always still a component, and so in the 19th century, certainly there was not a lot as a population. As um, this kind of comes more early 20th century, but especially because of academic endeavors that began to study, you know, Bulgarians traveling through these regions and studying these populations and saying, particularly, you know, first about the pomaks they speak Bulgarian, these are Bulgarians. And then coming up with this narrative of the past in which these populations were forcibly converted to Islam, and therefore these are really Bulgarian populations that we need to embrace. And in that sense, if you define yourself by language, these would be considered, the Pomaks, in particular, Bulgarian populations actually would help Bulgarian claims to places like Macedonia because you have those Pomak populations living there as well, and so you do have this kind of slow embrace of those populations. But in many ways, it remains academic um, until the 20th century, and it's really during the first Balkan War that they actually act on this, and it's really after that period that you that it becomes a broader tendency. Um, to embrace these populations as Bulgarian. And eventually this gets extended to Turks too, because you, you know, you read in the writings, well, like, these are Turkish populations, but look at them. They're blonde, they're blue eyed. These are really Bulgarians. These populations were forcibly converted and they also assimilated into the Turkish culture and learned the Turkish language. So these are really Bulgarian populations. And yet
0: I can think of many Bulgarians I know who have dark hair. <laughs> Dark air, darkish complexion. So, why the blonde would necessarily be Bulgarian is an interesting. That's
1: correct. And actually, if you if you look at those populations in Bulgaria, you certainly cannot tell physically who is who by you know sort of physical appearance. Um, that's why dress becomes really important. And I talk a lot about dress in my book, clothing. See,
0: that's why I wanted to go next because yeah. one of the things I think that makes your book really interesting is the way you talk about masculinity and femininity. Both is threats, and dress plays a big role in that. So, uh, why, you, uh, if you'd be so kind to uh, uh, talk a bit more about the dress issues, yeah, and uh, how that relates to the threat of mas- the different kinds of threats that masculinity and femininity pose.
1: Oh well, yeah. So I, you know, we talked a lot about nineteenth century here today, and that's kind of what lays the groundwork in many ways for this question, but. In the book, much of my work and much of the archival sources that I found were more based on the 20th century. And in reading those documents, I really didn't go in with any kind of preconceived notion of what I was going to focus on or what I was going to look at. But what I found interesting was the preponderance of discussion, especially in the communist period, but even prior to that, of, um, you know, certainly since the interwar period, and this is even, you know, became important with the Balkan Wars, this focus on clothing, on dress, and very specific and separate campaigns against women, Muslim women and Muslim men. And part of it was because, as I mentioned, you couldn't physically tell sort of who was who based on, you know, color of hair, color of eyes. There wasn't a racial, you know, difference in color of skin. So the main differences were names, which I also have another chapter on. So if someone said, yes, that's Mehmed, then you know he's a Turk or a Pomak. Um. But the other way you could tell just by looking at someone traditionally would be clothing. Now, one of the things I talked about that I thought was really interesting is that actually, if you look at pictures and even descriptions of the clothing, the differences are very subtle between Muslims and Christians. But then if you look at the way the Bulgarians write about these differences, they write about them in binaries that make them sound like they're essentially different, that somehow Muslim clothing is backwards and oppressive, whereas their own clothing is you know, indicative of progress in Europeanness. So this becomes a big issue in the book, talking about how Bulgarians have appropriated these kind of binaries from the West, these ways of understanding themselves as belonging to Europe
0: now you know we've talked so far and you know i it is a failing of mine that i am a 19th century specialist and as such i'm convinced that we can only understand the 19th century if we or rather the 20th century if we look at the the uh, 19th century but i would like to really move more into the 20th century which you did mention as the center of your book and uh, talk about the transition from uh the interwar period to the uh, to communist rule and how that affected uh, the issue of muslim minorities in some ways i was struck by the extent of the continuities
1: uh yeah i mean it's a it's a complicated question um uh, in in there were continuities in some ways in terms of the way bulgarians thought about muslims a lot of the academic formulations from the earlier periods carried over, eventually, and were kind of reformulated. Um, but in other ways, there was definitely breaks. And and uh, you know, in order to talk about that, I guess we have to kind of talk about Turks and Palms separately for a moment. But I mean, essentially, for the Turks in the pre-World War II period. The Bulgarian regime more or less supported and encouraged a conservatism among Turkish Muslims. Um, they allowed them, well, uh, not just allowed, they more or less compelled them to maintain the Arabic script. I mean, in the sense that when there were modernizing Turks who wanted to switch from the Arabic script to the Latin script, they were uh, watched. The police watched them, followed them, even incarcerated them. So they discouraged Kamalist uh, modernizing in Bulgaria along the lines of what was going on in Turkey under Kamal after. Um, and they considered that to be even a communist manifestation because Ataturk was anti-imperialist because he had received some money from the Soviet Union. And so in that sense, for Turks, there was quite a transition in policy. For Pomaks, on the other hand, in many ways, there was continuities because even in the interwar period, they had encouraged a modernizing Islam, they had encouraged uh, assimilation to Bulgarian slash European culture. And so that was encouraged, of course, and even enforced in the communist period. Although initially, they had to, uh, they incarcerated those Pomaks that they considered to be fascists. So those that had pushed that very program in the interwar period and wartime period had to be sort of pushed aside as fascists initially, but their program was adopted. Um, The individuals were not. The individuals were pushed aside, but their program was adopted. And in the communist period, they kind of just recast it using communist ideology and communist terms, but really embraced the same notion of homops are essentially Bulgarians who have been Islamicized, and should therefore be liberated from these vestiges of the Ottoman past and embraced as Bulgarian. Uh, and that was then extended to Turks eventually, who also had to be liberated from the Ottoman past, from the Ottoman victimhood. The fact that the Ottomans had also forcibly Islamized them and Turkified them, and so this was a gradual process throughout the period, but by 1984 This this culmination of this process among Turks happened when the so-called rebirth process was announced, and Turks were forced to take Bulgarian names. At that point, the regime essentially said there are no Turks in Bulgaria. There are only Bulgarian Muslims. So interestingly enough, although they discouraged Islam, they always left it in place, in a sense, and even worked through it. So it's... You know, it's a complex question, but there are certain continuities, certainly, in the way they thought about these populations and the way they tried to integrate them. Uh, but some of the nuts and bolts of who was involved uh, become complex because of new political configurations,
0: right? And I think you did mention that there were, you know, there were certain uh, uh, Bulgarian or uh, or Tur- Turkish Muslims who. Did get into the Communist Party and were involved and had their own attitudes about the uh, about how to promote progress.
1: Yeah, I mean the question of kind of collaboration and resistance, I think, is a really kind of thorny one in in general in Eastern European history in this period, both for minority and majority populations. But for Muslim, for minority populations, in some ways, it's even more complicated. But certainly, they were embraced by the regime in a kind of affirmative action. They were invited into the party. The party was always complaining that there weren't enough of them. They were offered kind of fast track into educational institutions. And this is something that the Bulgarians, of course, resented, they didn't still talk about. Um, but still, and some took advantage of those opportunities because it was a real opportunity for social advancement. But the bulk of them did not. The bulk of them stayed in their rural enclaves. Whereas Bulgarians were urbanizing and moving out of those areas, they stayed. But on the local level, some entered the party and became representatives of the party. It's unclear, though, the extent to which they enforced all of the party dictates on a local level. I mean, what seems to have happened so is that some certainly did, and especially when representatives of the party came into these locales, they could make it seem as if they were carrying out all dictates. But the party, the Bulgarian Party, was Communist Party, was constantly complaining about how not just the fact that Muslims didn't follow their program, but that Communist Party members who were Turks or Pomoks were also not following the party program. In other words, they were going to mosques, they were circumcising their sons, their wives were wearing, wearing veils, they were doing all the things that the party you know, was discouraging these populations from doing, um So, even party members themselves seem to have joined, but not necessarily embraced everything that the communist party wanted them to do in this period.
0: And this gets back to the gender issue again, because the the woman as a threat to uh, to the new order because they' are continuing to do the things they're they weren't supposed to they're pre- and pre- preserving in the home. A religious, you know, religious traditions that are against the modern um, expectations, if I understood the book correctly.
1: Yeah, I spent a lot of time talking about gender, and I think that, that my chapter on Muslim women is probably my favorite, one most interesting. But it's interesting that you define them as a threat, because on the one hand, they were. I mean, if Muslim women didn't change, then <laughs> culture wasn't going to change among those populations, because they were the ones who were going to educate their children, you know, they were the keepers of tradition, but on the other hand, um, at least the way they're conceptualized by the regime is as the ultimate victim, actually, and I think even today, Muslim women are seen as the victims of Muslim culture, the victims of Muslim men, who need to be liberated, and so that, this can be used as a justification for these programs. We need to liberate these women from this oppressive culture. And the communists, of course, saw them as the ultimate proletariat because they're oppressed by bourgeois culture, they're oppressed by the patriarchy, they're oppressed in all, you know, in every possible way. Um, and so, but yet they were a threat. And so if they didn't change, Muslim culture wasn't going to change. And so that's why they became in, in many ways the
0: cornerstone of the program. And, and that gets actually that to this broader connection with the, with our, the world and, you know, Bulgaria's vision of itself as European and progressive. Because this is, seems to be the most common rhetoric when we talk about Islam today is it's the rights of women that have to be uh, protected. Again and again, we hear that. And I, that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, it doesn't ache and pain me to see the women in Afghanistan not being allowed to get an education but the but the rhetoric does sort of repeat that this is, has to be westernized in a certain way that in some ways I think actually increases the antagonism uh, rather than uh, creating a way of, of dialogue forward.
1: precisely and so when I read um, writing this chapter I tried to read broadly and look at the question of veiling the low bully and think of it that way because it's it's interesting how it's become such a trope for for understanding Islam and understanding Muslim cultures within who live Muslim diasporas who live within Christian cultures that somehow the visibility of the veil um, is a threat to those societies and but yet it's always seen in terms of the oppression of those women um, and but if you look at the veil in the last few decades, and how it's reemerged in the Muslim world as this... I mean, there's a sense that it's this kind of tradition, but actually in a lot of the literatures, it's written up as something quite new. At least the way it's being worn now, and the kind of visibility it has, it's more of a statement that's being made by the more radical Islamic groups, um, by women who belong to those groups and want to make a the statement. They're, they're actually mobilized women. So um, in Bulgaria, I made a sort of an argument in a sense that, that it was kind of a statement to continue to wear these, these articles of clothing um, against a regime that discouraged them. It was a political statement in many ways. Uh, but on the other hand, the other thing I, I try and drive home in my book is that the, the veil in Bulgaria was more of a headscarf, I and mean, we're talking not about a heavy black veil, the type you might see, where just the eyes are showing for most of the population. We're talking about a simple headscarf. And so what I found interesting is that these headscarves were not much different from what Bulgarian women wore or what many of them had worn in the near past, but that they were coded as oppressive and and muslim by the regime. Suddenly, you know, the very same kind of piece of cloth came to mean something else. And the way they were wearing it, looked backwards and different and this needed to be gone in order for social progress to be
0: achieved. Could you describe the difference between, say, the way a Christian woman preparing on her way for church, going to church, would wear uh, her scarf as opposed to a, uh, a Muslim woman wearing her scarf on a daily basis?
1: Well, I think um, that there were regional differences in the way Bulgarian women wore scarves, and so I tried to put some of those images in there because some of the ways in some regions, the way they wore it looked quite similar to the way a Muslim woman would wear it, which would be looped under the chin um, as opposed to tied in the back and where no hair would be visible. And this is but in most cases Christian women tended to show a little strip of hair in the front and they tend to tie it in the back. Um, as opposed to in the, or if they tied it in the front, it wasn't sort of looped across and tied in the back. So the way that Muslim work tended to be, in some cases would even cover the mouth, but it tended to be looped under the chin and tied, you know, sort of around the front um, in a way that did cover slightly more, you know, covered the chin and more hair. And so actually in many documents I actually found, references where Communist Party members would say, why can't they just tie their scarves, you know, in the back instead of the front? I mean, it was something that simple. You know, this is supposed to be a veil, um, but really it's just a matter of the way it's tied. But I think on the local level, there was always cues. The heads, the way the headscarf was worn, the color of the headscarf, all of this, there were all kinds of ethnic cues Mm -hmm. in that that differentiated populations. But but what I'm saying is to say that one way of wearing it is somehow oppressive and connected to Islam, and the other is somehow progressive. Christian is really, or European, rather, is really problematic.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that comes very clear in the book. And, uh, you know, we are running close to the end of our time, and I do want to talk to you about the naming issue okay. uh, and a little bit about the expulsions, which are really my first probably exposure to uh, Bulgaria and the idea that there was a Muslim minority in Bulgaria. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So are you talking about the naming, the 84, 85
0: naming campaigns or the ones kind of throughout? Well, you can give a little bit of history, but the 84, 85 renaming campaign is sort of the effigy of that. Uh, policy, isn't it? I mean, it wasn't like this was going to come out of whole cloth.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the, I think we hear most about the 84 85 assimilation campaigns against Turks, in which name changes were crucial. There were other issues I talked about. There was a law on clothing, for example, and that same time in circumcision and other things came to the fore as well, um, and, including an assault on Turkish language. But um, the name changes seem to be the most powerful symbol of that moment of assimilation of Turks, in which essentially Bulgarian authorities went door to door and forced Turks to hand over their passports and any kind of identification, any documents with their Turkish names, and gave them a list of acceptable Bulgarian, Bulgarian names to choose, and they had to choose one. And for those populations, it's sort of like a essentially like a baptism, to take on what they consider to be a Christian name. Um, but it's also just, there's something hugely violent and symbolic about suddenly your identity is being taken, basically. Mm-hmm. And there were um, violent forms of resistance against this in the Turkish pro- provinces, and it was also imposed by violence mm-hmm. in many of these provinces. But this, in many ways, it was a culmination of, I think, an obsession with names that went back, in history, although it had never been... Um, name-changing campaigns had never been a, against Turks in the past. They'd only been against POMOX. Um, but it was the same rhetoric that was used. It was the same justification. It was the same academic formulations behind it. It's just that those were now extended to Turkish populations. So the first ones had been in the First Balkan War, and those accompanied actually also a kind of mass-force conversion of POMOX to Islam. The second run was In the interwar period, they started as voluntary, and then they became forced during World War II with POMOX, and then finally POMOX began in the communist period. There were voluntary name-changing campaigns that began in the mid-60s and culminated in the mid-70s in 1975, when POMOX were forced to take Bulgarian names. And the interesting thing about that, since it happens three times, there are many... Especially among the older generations who had their names changed back and forth three times, essentially, and so it became almost okay. Now I'm, you know, now I'll be Ivan again, and so they were, you know, Hassan and then Ivan and then Hassan and Ivan, and so it becomes almost this absurd, you know, situation for people are having to change their identity completely back and forth, and just. Many of those who especially the Pomaks, I think who had the name changing for much longer because for the Turks it was fairly brief. You know, it was from eighty four eighty five, from you know, eighty-four eighty five to eighty nine. And then in eighty-nine, they were reversed after the fall of communism. But for Pomaks, many of them had these name changes from 1975 to 1989. And so, if you're in Pomak regions and you ask someone their name, (laughs) um, sometimes they'll just throw out a Bulgarian name, like Ivan, and you'll say, is that really your name? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm also Hassan, or something, they'll have this other name, but they kind of, they use both, and they were used to using one in public for so long that they just maintain it. Um, But even if you were born, you know, born after, let's say, 1975, you were given a Turkish name or a you know, Turco-Arabic name for use at home. And so even if you were publicly uh, Goran or whatever your name was, um, you would always have another name that you would use at home. And so uh, for those populations, it became, became kind of more of a, you know, like an enduring feature
0: of, of their identity, in a sense. Trying what? to double that. Just one last follow-up on that. What was it about 1984 that said, this is the time we have to do this? Was there any particular motivation? Was it the fact that the Home Ops now had done it so we can get on with the last remaining non-Bulgarians and finish the job? Or was there, uh, were there other issues that had led to that at that time? Mm-hmm.
1: It's one of those questions I'm not sure we can entirely answer, but I think, uh, one, if you, if you look at the trajectory of communist policies, you can see it as kind of a, a culmination of various other assimilatory measures that had been going on throughout the period, first with Comox, but also with Turks, simultaneously. So even though they had Turkish schools, those were being slowly Bulgarianized, um, other kind of Turkish rituals were being discouraged or outlawed over the period. So in many ways, it's a culmination. But I think also for Zhivkov who was the dictator, he was grasping for some strand of legitimacy in a period in which, not just Bulgaria, but in the whole bloc, legitimacy was really waning for various reasons, including economic reasons, because it was a, a rough decade economically for these regimes. And so I think he was playing on Bulgarian nationals in a sense, thinking that this was something that would be popular among the Bulgarian populations, which um, it was among many, but it also provoked dissent among many thinking Bulgarian intellectuals. But also he had this, ironically, this rhetoric of, um, you know, look at all we've achieved, this march to progress is happening, We we are approaching right communism, we are almost there. And so I think for him... was part of that and we can't get there until we do this until we are all you know european bulgarian integrated modern socialist nation so it it, you know it's almost like did you really think that i mean it seems absurd now but if you look at everything that they were trying to achieve and doing i think they, they saw this march of progress actually happening and that um that really right
0: communism was right around the corner
1: and so this is part of making
0: that happen. Well, thank you very much. Uh, just a couple of final questions I always like to ask, uh, by the people I'm interviewing. First of all, uh, if, a, if, uh, someone is interested in, and has sparked and beyond reading your book, you, are there any other readings you would recommend, uh, people to look at in this area? Uh,
1: well, there are, there's Ali and Minib's book, um, Turkish and Other Minorities in Bulgaria, which came out slightly before mine, and it focuses on different issues and has different kinds of information. And so that I would also, that something I'd recommend. Also, Kristen Godzi just came out with a more recent book that looks at the post-communist period, and it's called Islam in Eastern Europe. Um, I can't remember the exact title, something like that. And it's about, Bulgarian Muslims and post socialist Bulgaria.
0: It's been a pleasure talking to you about the book on my, my Muslim minorities. What are you working on next?
1: <laughs> well, I'm working on a book that's actually in the final stages of publication and will be released either this summer or fall with Cornell Press, and it's called Balkan Smoke, The Social Life of Tobacco in Bulgaria. Uh, And so it's a cultural history of tobacco that explores consumption, production, production, and commerce of tobacco from kind of the mid-19th century through the communist period. So that's that book. And there's a spin-off, various articles, but also an edited book coming out this summer with Paulina Brand called Communism Unwrapped. Consumption Cold War Eastern Europe. So those are the two things coming out. That sounds
0: Sounds very good. Anything in the longer range?
1: Uh, Well, and then, yeah, coming out of, I think, work on that project, I have um, a project developing on the influence of Protestant missionaries in the Balkans, believe it or not, Uh, mainly because I discovered that their work on abstinence um, was really an interesting strand of Balkan history and it led me to looking at the broader kind of work they were doing in the region and especially among Bulgarians they had a huge influence in the 19th and early 20th centuries
0: so that's so the next that part. sounds very interesting indeed and uh, before I let you go what, um, what recommendations do you have for someone who wants to know more about Bulgarian or Balkan history
1: oh well um See, there's, that's broader than, than I was thinking. I was thinking more in terms of a follow-up on my original topic on my book. But that too, you can always, uh, feel free to add it all. <laughs> um, well, actually, the thing that came out recently that's really, um, I think, excellent, that follows up on the discussion of Muslim minorities in the Balkans is Kristen Godsey's Muslim Lives in okay. Eastern Europe, which is an anthropological study of a town in Bulgaria, Madan, in southern Bulgaria. And looks at the transition from socialism. Uh, it gives background into what the town was like under socialism, but on a real micro level. So it's a really excellent study and uh, something I would highly recommend.
0: Okay. okay. Well, I do thank you for taking the time out to talk to me today. And uh, no problem. Look forward to more work from you in the future, Mary. I, it's been a pleasure to have Mary Neuberger with us today. Goodbye. It's nice talking to you. Bye. Thank you for joining us on New b- Books in East European Studies. I'm your host, Hugh We've been speaking with Mary Nolenberger about her book, The Orient Within. And join us again next week when we'll be speaking with another author.